What's next in innovation? That's not the right question. It's where. Puerto Rico is more than just a tropical paradise. It's an innovations paradise where startups and global players coexist in a vast and vibrant ecosystem where talent runs deep, highly skilled, and bilingual. Plus, Puerto Rico has the most competitive tax incentives in the U.S. If you believe your business can go anywhere, this is the place to bring it. Find out more at investpr.org slash economist. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. European Union countries love to poke fun at their neighbors, relying on national stereotypes. But our correspondent was surprised to find how commonly that typecasting happens in Brussels, the Union's administrative heart. And you might think that all sand is the same, and that it's easily available all over the world. You'd be wrong. Smugglers are making a fortune mining the most useful stuff. But this gritty trade has serious environmental costs. First up, though. Yesterday's State of the Union speech by Russian President Vladimir Putin started with some unsurprising bread-and-butter chat about the country's declining population and its social safety net. But then he dropped a bombshell. Mr. Putin proposed sweeping constitutional changes that could extend his time in power. Hours later, on state television, Prime Minister Dmitry Medvedev said that he and the entirety of the cabinet were resigning to give Mr. Putin the opportunity to make all the necessary decisions to push those constitutional changes through. As it stands, Mr. Putin is due to step down in 2024, when his second consecutive term ends. But he's engineered ways to stay in power for 20 years already, and it seems that now he's found another. Vladimir Putin has stunned everybody by announcing, firstly, a complete revision of the Russian constitution, quite what the details of that are going to be are completely obscure, and secondly, firing the government, in effect. Christopher Lockwood is our Europe editor. The main reason why this is likely to have happened has to do with Vladimir Putin's own future. He is termed out under the current Russian constitution. In 2024, he will have to stand down, having served his second consecutive term as president. And it's not clear what will happen to him after that. If you are a man like Mr. Putin, who has made as many enemies as he has, it's quite likely you would want to stay, as many autocrats do, stay in power forever. So how does he accomplish this? What most observers think is that the changes to the constitution are likely to find a role into which to cement him to make sure that he's protected after that 2024 date. And how do you think this will have been orchestrated? Is there a sense of any resistance within the government? This move came as an enormous surprise to everybody. We saw reports of ministers saying that they had no idea this was coming. There was a meeting that was televised between Mr. Putin and the Prime Minister, Dmitry Medvedev, earlier that day. So presumably he knew something about it. Mr. Medvedev has himself been fired and replaced by an obscure technocrat. We don't yet know the details of the rest of the government. 
This is almost certainly something that was cooked up just by the president and a few very close advisors, a surprise to everybody, but something that would have been on his mind for quite a long time. And Mr. Putin has been in power for two decades already, right? Yes, indeed. Russians have seen this movie before. Think back to his history. He's been acting prime minister and president since the end of 1999 and in 2000 became formally president. He served two terms then. At that point, he was termed out. What was he going to do? Well, surprise, surprise, he became prime minister and suddenly that role of prime minister became the most powerful role in Russia. He put in Mr. Medvedev as president then and oddly enough, the presidency became a very unimportant role. Mr. Putin served one term as prime minister. And then in 2012, he was back for not one, but two presidential terms. Because the constitution says, unlike, say, America, that you're only limited to two consecutive terms. So why not pull that same trick again and do swapsies with the prime ministership? It's entirely possible that he will do exactly that. We don't really know what he is planning to do. Another possibility is, of course, that he could change the constitution to abolish term limits or, for instance, say that Russia is now a different place with a different constitution. Therefore, the term limits are all reset. That's a trick we've seen among African despots, for example. Or he may move to another role. Actually, there's an old joke about Iran where there was a very powerful fellow called Mr. Rafsanjani and the joke in Iran was always, what's the most important job? Well, it's whatever job Mr. Rafsanjani holds. It's a bit like that with Mr. Putin. And one possibility is that instead of becoming prime minister, he might choose to stay as president of an obscure body called the State Council. It exists at the moment, but only as an advisory council. He is the president of it. He may stay on as the president of it, even after he stops being president of the country. And he talked about giving this body more powers. But all of that seems controversial and complicated. Why not simply do the trick that he's pulled before? Well, I suppose the problem there is he might not get away with it. There might be too much popular protest if he tries to do it. As our correspondent in Moscow points out, Mr. Putin is by training a spy. He is an expert in the arts of concealment, obfuscation. And it's possible that what he's trying to do here is create uncertainty, lack of clarity, and move within that. Back in 2012, when he came back as president, having done his four years as prime minister, there was a lot of protest. And he may feel that he doesn't want to reignite that. But there have been protests in Russia since. Why wouldn't this move, because everyone can see straight through it, excite just the same kind of protest? Funnily enough, and of course it's early days, we haven't seen much protest yet. Indeed, everybody seems to have treated it more with a sense of resignation, saying things like, whoever expected he would ever leave in 2024. I think people are just getting a bit weary and realize that protest doesn't get them very far in Russia. But in these intervening years, there's been a rise of a plausible challenger, the opposition leader, Alexei Navalny. How do you think the opposition movement will respond to all this? Well, the opposition is clearly there. They can turn out people on the streets. And last year in local elections, they did quite well in a number of places. They got more seats in admittedly not very powerful Moscow City Council and some other councils too. The problem is they don't really have a plausible leader. Alexei Navalny is a plausible person, but he can't really ever aspire to be leader of Russia because they keep locking him up. They don't allow him to contest elections. Every time he tries to lead a rally, he gets arrested. He is not somebody who can easily step into Mr. Putin's shoes. Now, there are parliamentary elections coming next year. And you may well see there that the ruling party, United Russia, Mr. Putin's party, gets a bit of a beating, loses some seats. Will it not control the Duma anymore, Russia's parliament? I I doubt that. The opposition is too weak, a bit fragmented, and United Russia is still very powerful. And so what about outside of Russia? How is all of this being viewed? 
Well, it's being viewed with silence, really, and that's not surprising. Donald Trump in America is rather a fan of autocrats around the world, so you won't get any criticism from him. And from the EU, you won't get much either. The EU is much more pro-Russia than it used to be, partly because the EU fears the rise of China, because it depends on Russia for its gas imports, and because there's a feeling that the relationship became too badly damaged by what happened in Crimea and Ukraine in 2014 and needs to be brought back from the brink. So taken in the round, with a lack of powerful opposition internally and a lack of pressure from outside, it looks to me as though Vladimir Putin is going to be around for a good while yet. Chris, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Seven in ten full-time workers would consider switching jobs for better benefits. Benefit strategies are crucial to building a competitive advantage. But how can employers meet diverse priorities across industries and demographics? Benefits 2.0 from Economist Impact, supported by Nuveen, a TIAA company, explores how benefits empower individuals, elevate companies, and drive the U.S. economy. Search Economist Impact Benefits 2.0 to learn more. Sponsored by Nuveen, a TIAA company. Stereotypes are the defenses of our position in society. So said the American writer Walter Lippmann, who coined the term in 1922. In Europe, crude caricatures of near neighbors are nothing new. There's the arrogant, baguette-toting Frenchman, the humorless, efficient German, the Brit who's either a drunken football hooligan or a sarcastic tea drinker with a stiff upper lip. But one place you might not expect to hear such sweeping assessments is in Brussels, cosmopolitan center of a united Europe. The Brussels bubble is full of people who stay in Brussels for about two to five years each. They're all very educated. They all speak lots of languages. They're nearly all white. It's this extremely monolithic entity that pretends it's extremely diverse when it sort of isn't. Duncan Robinson is our Brussels bureau chief. When I first came to Brussels, I noticed that stereotypes, rather than withering and dying in Brussels as everyone sort of mixes together, they actually sort of reinforce themselves. Everyone relies on them as these sort of useful heuristics of understanding really complicated consonants in a quick and easy way. And there's the other issue that people tend to sort of dip in and out of the Brussels bubble. People are there for two to five years. And if there's 28 countries speaking different languages with different cultures, you do need to have a few shortcuts to try and understand them. And yes, they can be a bit glib, but they can also be quite useful. Well, what kind of stereotypes are we talking about here? So there are lots of national stereotypes, for example. The Germans are seen as this very organized and very officious bunch who are sort of secretly running the show. There's the French officials who sort of see Europe as this huge magnifying glass for French power, and therefore everyone else is sort of get out their way and little countries don't really count. There's this view of Eastern European officials as these sort of adolescent type officials who don't quite deserve their place in the European institutions yet. There's a split between North and South when it comes to financial policy. The North likes to think of the South as we really profligate area of the continent where they just don't take care of their money, whereas the South see the North as irresponsibly miserly in the way that they deal with economics. 
But it is surprising to imagine that at the center of European integration that these kinds of stereotypes would be tolerated, wouldn't be promulgated anyway. True, but it just becomes a sort of coping mechanism for complexity. So people who get really into the weeds on the policy area will know that, you know, country X doesn't actually think that. But when things got really ugly was during the euro crisis, when you just had huge splits in Europe. Countries like Greece were being bailed out and countries like Germany were the ones who were having to cough up the cash. And this was very controversial in both countries. And so in the popular press in Germany, you had this sort of image of Greeks as just sort of layabouts who spent all their money on holidays and duzo. And then in Greece, you just had German politicians being dressed up as Nazis. Now that is where stereotypes become very, very dangerous indeed. That really didn't make negotiations any easier. And I suppose that not all of these caricatures are negative. Exactly. German officials and Germans in general have this reputation of being well-organized, etc. And of course, that's not always the case. But that's quite a helpful sort of reputation to have. Their officials don't have to run uphill to prove that they are good at their jobs because people sort of assume that they will be. Whereas officials from, say, Romania or Bulgaria, which have had struggle with sort of corruption and that sort of bled over into their national reputation, those guys have to run uphill. And that's a big problem when it comes to Eastern European states versus Western European states, because... Easterners, especially when they work in EU institutions, still feel like they're treated as second-class citizens. And that's partly because they just have these sort of negative stereotypes surrounding them in a way that, say, German or Dutch officials don't. But also perhaps as newer members of the club. This is true. There's this sort of assumption that if there's a, a policy disagreement, it's because the Eastern European states are relatively young in terms of their membership of the European Union. And it's sometimes like put down sort of adolescent posturing. So rather than it being sort of a legitimate policy objection, it's just seen as this sort of tantrum, which again is a very unhealthy way of looking at things. And so do you find yourself at the pointy end of it yourself as a Brit in Brussels? Oh, of course. Of course, Brits are seen as always monoglots, quite arrogant. But what's interesting post-Brexit is that the reputation shifted slightly. So before Brexit, we were seen as sort of arrogant and a bit annoying, but still fundamentally quite canny and pragmatic in the way we operate. But because there's been Brexit, and we're now associated with something that most people in the EU see as very negative, there's a little more caution about it. They basically think that Brits have gone mad. And so British officials sometimes find themselves running uphill, that they have to prove what they're arguing isn't just some deranged Brexit infused point, but it actually is a policy point worth listening to. And that's the sort of first time that the Brits have had to go through that. And so it's this sort of loss of privilege more than anything else. A stereotype can be a sort of privilege as much as it can be a prejudice. And so then do you find yourself pointing out that you too think Brexit is mad? I try not to, but there's a certain strand of sort of self-hating British officials. Some British officials in the institutions uh, find themselves sort of almost overcompensating and saying it's such a disaster in a sort of bid to fit in again, saying, no, 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 don't see me as a Brit, see me as a European like you guys. To essentially avoid the, the negative end of, of the stereotype, I mean, surely there are other people floating around Brussels doing the same thing, overcompensating to, to, to account for these stereotypes they think they're up against. This is true. I spoke to a, a French friend who used to work in the European Commission, and she said she would deliberately sort of tone down herself in meetings because she didn't want to be sort of accused of being sort of haughty and French. And even very senior people find themselves doing it. So when Mario Draghi was trying to be promoted to president of the European Central Bank, his sort of allies had to sort of emphasise how un-Italian he was and how he had this sort of very German attitude towards monetary policy, to the point where Bild, the German tabloid newspaper, actually gave him a Prussian helmet at the end of it. I suppose the other point here is that a lot of these are elected officials who are representing views at home and who, you know, not only bring their biases with them, but kind of represent them in Brussels. What do you think the relationship is between the kind of stereotyping and, and its effects in Brussels and that with the voters at home? 
Well, I think one of the reasons there is so much stereotyping in Brussels is because Brussels is always trying to listen to domestic concerns. And so if the population of Germany has this caricatured view of the Greeks, of this sort of lazy ouzo drinkers, then it's very hard for German politicians and officials in Brussels to then argue that we need to bail these guys out. They've got the choice. They can either spend a load of political capital convincing their domestic audience that actually, no, it's, it's not quite like that. Or they can take the easy route and just say, yeah, it is a bit like that and go quite hard. And that's a very sort of difficult nut to crack, because if it's voters who do have this sort of mistaken stereotype views, then they're going to elect politicians that almost have to reflect that. Right. Well, I guess I'll encourage you to um, indulge in a cup of tea and keep that upper lip stiff, Duncan. I certainly will. Thanks for your time. Thank you. In the popular imagination, sand seems to be everywhere, from riverbeds to beaches to deserts that stretch across whole continents. In reality, it's a finite and surprisingly diverse commodity that people are going further and further afield to get hold of. I recently went to a town along the Red River in northern Vietnam. Charlie McCann is The Economist's Southeast Asia correspondent, based in Singapore. And I saw a man hoovering sand from the riverbed up onto his barge and then pumping the sand onto a nearby bank where the sand was to be collected and sold. There were about six barges doing the same thing and they pumped so much sand onto this bank that there was dune after dune after dune. These teams work without permits, but when you understand how much money they can make, you see why they work illegally. It's possible to earn between $700 and $1,000 for every boatload of sand you dredge. The average Vietnamese makes just $288 a month. So wait a minute, why is is river sand so valuable to these people? Sand makes up about 80% of cement and 90% of asphalt, so it's essential to the construction industry. And it's been fueling a construction boom in Asia in particular. China got through more sand between 2011 and 2013 than America did in the entirety of the 20th century. So in addition to being used in the construction industry, it's also used in land reclamation. Singapore has expanded its territory by almost a quarter since 1965 by dumping millions of tons of sand into the sea. The OECD actually thinks that the construction industry's demand for sand and gravel is going to double over the next four decades. And so this means the price of sand is going up. In Vietnam in 2017, the price actually quadrupled. So why did it need to be smuggled? And so why, why isn't local sand good for all of these local projects? Not all sand is the same. And the kind that's been formed by wind, i.e. desert sand, is basically too smooth to make cement with. Whereas the kind that's been formed by water, so the kind that you find in rivers and along coasts, is rough enough that it can bond together to make cement. Right, but hoovering it up off of riverbeds and then shipping it around the world must be appalling for the environment. Yeah, a recent UN report actually describes sand mining as one of the major sustainability challenges of the 21st century. There are a few reasons why. Sand acts as a natural buffer against storms and, and floods, and as climate change gets worse, we're going to have much more extreme storms and floods. And so the miners are stripping away this first line of defense, just as we need it most. There are a few other effects. So dredging sand from a river can alter its course and flow, and this accelerates erosion. I was speaking to a pomelo farmer who has lived next to the Red River all his life. About 30 years ago, there was a kilometer of land standing between his house and the Red River. 
And today it's just 20 meters. And he chalks this erosion up to the extensive sand mining that's been taking place along that portion of the river. And so if this demand is relentlessly rising, I mean, how can the, the smuggling and the problems that it brings be, be controlled? This is the hard part. In many Asian countries, the sand mining industry is entirely unregulated. And this means that there's a lot of illegal sand mining. So it's thought that only two-fifths of sand that's traded around the world is extracted legally. And there's also a lot of corruption. A prominent activist alleges that many Indian government officials are complicit in the sand trade. But there is hope. Architects and engineers are experimenting with new building materials like cross-laminated timber, and a few states are taking action. Singapore, for instance, is reclaiming a new patch of land by draining it of water rather than soaking it up with sand. So it's good to see that at least one government is finally pulling its head out of the sand. Charlie, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Jason. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer. 12 issues for $12 or £12. See you back here tomorrow. World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream. But what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts.